Uh, I hope uh, that this morning you might have something of a, a fresh understanding or appreciation for Jesus and this story. <clears throat> this is a story that is probably very familiar to many of us as we, we delve into it every Easter, but we also we keep coming back to it. This is a, a central series of events to our whole faith, and so this is probably pretty familiar, but I hope that it's a, it's a nice refreshing familiarity this morning. Kind of like uh, each year as winter rolls around and you get the, the mandarins come into season and, and you smell them once again after not having smelt them for many months. And it's, it's a wonderful uh, uh, moment where it's a smell that you know so well, but it's also a, a new um, you know, moment, a remembrance. I hope that's what we have when we come to hear about our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. We're jumping in halfway through the story, as we tend to do each week. We pick up where we left off. But remember, we're in the Gospel of John. And this is a record about the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. Just to recap, the first half of the book covers a bunch of miracles, or in John they're called signs, that Jesus performed as he travelled around and he taught um, and preached as he went with his band of disciples. And these signs built up in John's Gospel, he puts in one sign at the end that is a, uh, a kind of climactic moment in the book, which is raising Lazarus from the dead. The book has noted several attempts by the religious leaders of the day to try and kill Jesus. But Jesus had been clear that his hour had not yet come. And so, try as they might to take out Jesus, they couldn't because his hour had not yet come. But, after this resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus gathers with his disciples in Jerusalem and Jesus pronounces, my hour has come. This one last meal that they shared together, that we call the Last Supper, and John records an extended series of teaching that happened over the course of that meal, which culminates in the prayer that we call the High Priestly Prayer. But after this Last Supper, Jesus and the disciples head out of Jerusalem, uh, across the brook Kidron, as we read last week, to an olive garden. But there, while they were there, they were met by a band of armed soldiers and officials representing the religious bigwigs in Jerusalem. They were led there by one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas, the betrayer, who had betrayed Jesus for money. But then they took Jesus, they arrest him, and they ship him off to Anna, the high priest Annas' house, where he was questioned, before being sent to the high priest Caiaphas' house. And to clear up the confusion from last week, it seems that Annas was the high priest, and he should have been the high priest for entirety of his life but the Romans had deposed him so he should still be high priest anyway turns out that each of his sons and also his son-in-law Caiaphas each had a turn at being high priest so um, that's what the story was basically it seems like Annas probably still has a lot of power and um, ability to to inform events but technically Caiaphas is the high priest at that time so Jesus goes to Annas' house first where he's questioned and then he goes to Caiaphas' house and that's where we left it last week. And now as we pick up the story today, we're looking at a passage that is 
and I love this turn of phrase, pregnant with irony. It's a passage that is pregnant with irony. And John's been doing this throughout the whole of his gospel, the way that he records events. Now, if you don't know what I mean by irony, I mean that it's where things are contrary to what you expect. Or, and in the dictionary, it says perversely contrary to what you expect. Such that when somebody in the story thinks that one thing is happening, it's actually something completely different or opposite that's happening. It would be ironic if a, a guy who had committed a crime and he, he was on the run was confessing to somebody about how smart he was that he had got away with this crime, not realising that he was confessing to an undercover cop. That would be ironic. So in our passage today, we've got three ironies, and they're in the, buried in the three main portions of the text. So let's look at each passage in turn. And you get special bonus points if you can figure out where the verses are that the names of each point comes from. So the names of each point comes from a verse of the Bible. So the first is the straining of a gnat to swallow a camel. This is how Jesus has previously described the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are one of the religious sects. But this, um, this, this picture, this, this, this image picture of straining a gnat to swallow a camel, it presents this farcical idea. Imagine you've got a bowl of soup and you're trying to like, get the little gnat out of it because you don't want the bugs in your soup. All the while, there's a camel sitting in it. It just, it just shows the kind of farcical picture of, of, trying to, of, of hypocrites. Jesus uses this word picture to describe the Pharisees, but that's what's happening here in this story as well with the religious leaders, not just the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the chief priests. Is it any wonder that Pharisee has become a word for hypocrite when this is the way they behave? So what, what have we got happening here with the religious leaders? The leading men of Israel... Let's see their hypocrisy. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So they take Jesus to what is literally the Praetorium. Palace is a bit of a stretch because Praetoriums can be tents as well. Um, so, but it's the governor's residence. It's the leading person's residence. It could possibly be the Fortress Antonio um, up there on the side of the Temple Mount. But from our historical records, we understand that Pilate, the Roman governor of this time, he, he probably didn't normally live in Jerusalem, but instead lived somewhere else. But on high days, like on feast days, when there was a lot happening at Jerusalem, with all the Jews coming up to worship, he would come down and spend his time in Jerusalem so that he was right there on hand in case riots broke out or if there's some reason why he needed to be there to step in. So he's there at the Praetorium. And um, under God's Old Testament law, there was a pretty, um, there was this idea of ceremonial cleanliness. Uh, we, it, it talks about, you know, kind of ceremonial purity, ritual purity. And this idea of ceremonial cleanliness for the people of God in the Old Testament, it wasn't, it wasn't directly connected to hygiene, but there was a little bit of an overlap. Obviously, if you wash stuff and it's clean, that's good for hygiene. But um, it, wasn't, it wasn't all about hygiene. It was about this kind of ritual purity. 
And you can see here that the religious leaders, they want to maintain their ritual purity on this feast, the feast of the Passover, the feast of the unleavened bread. And so they don't want to go into the praetorium because they understood there was a pretty clear distinction between the people of God and others. And so the word they use to describe others is Gentiles. And the Gentiles had traditions and things, you know, for instance, things like eating pork that the Jews didn't do. And so they didn't like to associate too closely with Gentiles for fear of becoming ritually unclean. But here's the thing. God doesn't give them a law that they can't go in to a Gentile house. They are being so scrupulous about trying to be ritually pure that they don't want to go in there in case because of the risk of potentially becoming unclean. So what's the irony? Well, the irony is that they are being so particular about their ritual purity while they're trying to commit a murder. They are trying to use God's law and abuse God's law and work the system so that they can execute Jesus and at the same time they are being so particular about their ceremonial cleanliness. Something that they can recover if they happen to touch something they shouldn't have touched, there's a way to get ritually pure again. But something they can't undo is the murder that they were trying to commit. Jesus was tried at night, like he shouldn't have been under the Old Testament law, which basically means it was done in secret. After all, who can come and testify and give uh, true good evidence uh, when everybody's asleep at home? Um, The witnesses that were brought against Jesus gave false testimony and their witness testimony didn't line up. And it just shows that the Pharisees, the religious leaders had decided the case before they brought it. They decided what the outcome should be. They weren't interested in justice. They weren't interested in the truth. But don't worry. Uh, They're trying to commit this murder, but don't worry, they're still going to be able to go to the party later because they won't go into the Roman governor's house and accidentally touch something they shouldn't have. Now, it's easy to look and laugh at this kind of farcical situation but we also need to think about it ourselves. Jesus is very clear that we should take the log out of our own eye before trying to deal with the speck in our brother's eye. How quick are we to judge others because of something that we ourselves haven't got sorted out? Now, Jesus doesn't say, don't help your brother out or your sister out. He doesn't say, don't have a true and proper understanding of the the way things are. But he does say that we shouldn't be hypocrites. But the thing is, we often justify our hypocrisy to ourselves, as I'm sure the religious leaders of Jesus' day did. And so it can be hard to see the hypocrisy in our own life. I think we should pray and ask the Lord to reveal our hypocrisy to ourselves so that we might repent and have a clear conscience before God. But back to the story. Pilate came out to them and he asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. So Pilate had to come out to them because they didn't want to come in. He comes out to them, does them a favour. John here doesn't record the charges that the Jewish leaders brought. 
in, in some respects, the way that John has written, it kind of assumes that you've already got some of the other details from the other Gospels. That's a, that's a bit of a, a, a stretch, but it, it, the way that he leaves out what seems to be key information assumes that you already know some part of the story. But they don't, he doesn't write out what the charges are that the Jewish leaders are bringing against them. Instead, John just records their retort. If he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him here, as if that justifies their actions. But Jude, uh, Pilate hasn't got a real desire to get involved in the intricacies of Jewish religious affairs and the, the rules and things. He's, he's, he says, you worry about that, look after it yourself. Pilate said, take him and judge your, uh, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law, but we will have, we have, sorry, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law, but we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. So you can see here that they've already, they're gunning for the death penalty, that's why they've come to Pilate, the, the Romans in that day were the occupying force. They had taken over Israel and they had stopped the Jews from having the power to execute people. After all, in God's law, God's Old Testament law, there were particular occasions when you would execute somebody. And one of the big well-known ones is for murder. If you take somebody else's life, then you will have your life taken. So God's law had said that there were reasons why you would execute people in a good society. But the Romans had come in and said, no, we're going to reserve the right to be the ones who choose when somebody gets executed. So in order to get the death penalty carried out, the Jews have to come to the Romans and say, we want to take this guy out. And so the best way to swing it, if you want it to go your way, is to make it sound like the person has broken not only the Jewish law, but also Roman law. Because then the Romans are going to be much more amenable to executing somebody if they're seen as a criminal on both sides. So that's what the Pharisees are trying to do. They're trying to pit Jesus against the Romans so that uh, the Romans will take him out. But it's interesting here that we see that Jesus has already foreseen what's coming because if Jesus was to be executed under the Old Testament law, he would most likely be executed by stoning. However, Jesus has prophesied you will see the Son of Man lifted up. And that is what happens when somebody is crucified. They're lifted up. So Jesus has already predicted what kind of death is going to come for him. And it is all coming together. You know, this reminds me of the mobs of our own day, where a furor erupts over some controversy or other. And it's so easy to get swept up and to pronounce your judgment about what things, what, the way things should be, what should have happened, who was right, who was wrong. But it, only later do we find out that the truth might have been more complex than we first thought. Or the facts actually, when revealed, bear out that the opposing side was in the right. So it's an encouragement, I suppose, to us, a warning to us not to get swept up into agendas that have decided the outcome before the process even begins. And that's even when uh, it's people who are on our side. We don't want to get caught up in that mob mentality. But if we keep moving on, we come to the second section, we see that there is another irony. 
an irony that is related to the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. This is Jesus. Pilate agrees to look into the issue with this Jesus. So Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your idea, Jesus asked, or did others ask you about me? Pilate knows the accusation that is being leveled at Jesus. And it seems that Pilate is concerned on, you know, what's the story here? Is this just some internal Jewish thing or is this actually something I need to be worried about? As a Roman governor, is there somebody who's setting up an opposing rule to the Romans? And so Jesus asks a question to kind of expose what Pilate is thinking, whether he's genuinely interested or whether he's just looking for a quick way out. But Pilate responds, am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? He wants to understand what the story is from Jesus' perspective. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Pilate wanted to hear from Jesus' own mouth what the story was and perhaps understand, perhaps he already kind of understood that the religious leaders might have had some kind of bias against them. Jewish people were notoriously hard uh, to have uh, occupying forces rule over them, probably for good reason. But Pilate wants to get to the bottom of it. But Jesus is reserved in his responses here. He knows what needs to happen. He knows that he's headed to the cross. He knows the path that is ahead of him. And so he is reserved and he, like a lamb before his shearers, is somewhat silent. But he will reveal something. He will reveal that his kingdom is not of this world. This is something that Peter had misunderstood earlier when he had taken out his sword and taken off the ear of one poor fellow. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It's an otherworldly kingdom that starts and grows like a mustard seed and grows to become the greatest tree in the garden. It's a kingdom that is like a stone carved without hands that smashes the kingdoms of this world and then grows to become a mountain that overtakes the whole world. It's not of this world. In Luke, we, Luke records once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And this is the kingdom that Jesus was building. It wasn't a kingdom where he was going to come in and he was going to, you know, get together a, a, a mercenary force and kind of win people over to his side and then build up enough of a militia then to take, over, take on the Romans and, and, you know, recruit people and go to battles and wars. It wasn't that kind of kingdom building. This is a different way of building a kingdom. This is a kingdom that kind of overlays and, and underlies the kingdoms of the earth that we see. And so in some sense, Jesus wasn't a threat to the Romans because he wasn't coming in in that way to, to, to depose the ruling powers of the day. But it is still a threat 
Because the kingdoms of this world, when they are founded and based on anything other than God's truth, they are going to be filled with evil and wickedness. They're going to be kingdoms that oppose God. And so the kingdoms of this world do need to be afraid of Jesus from that perspective because he comes and opposes them in their pride. In our, in, in our day, we see this in, in China where Christian churches, they try to tightly control them because there is the fear of what the truth of the gospel will do to the ruling powers. They are afraid. And so they try and, they try and control it. They try and control the gospel. But even as it is here in Australia, you, we hear increasing uh, concern of right-wing Christian nationalists, people who, who might believe what the Bible says and then, and then actually expect to live by it. They understandably see that with the coming of the truth of Jesus Christ that it would affect them that it would mean something about, that they would have to change, that they would have to come face to face with the truth of Jesus Christ. But it is not a, Jesus isn't coming with a kingdom, a usurping kingdom. He's coming with a kingdom that changes people from the inside out. We need to be changed from the inside out. Our culture, our, our, our nation needs to be changed from the inside out. And that's what Jesus did to the Roman Empire. He changed it from the inside out. Now, sure, there was still a sad ending for the Roman Empire with their debauchery and their wickedness and their, they departed from the gospel. But for a time, the gospel grew and grew and grew in the Roman Empire till it got to the point where they turned around and said, we're a Christian empire. In the story, Jesus acknowledges that he is a king by the way that he had answered Pilate's question. Pilate says, ha, gotcha, you are a king then Jesus answered you say that I'm a king in fact the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth everyone on the side of truth listens to me what is truth Pilate retorted Jesus responds to the king question with you know you said it that's how it is and this is why Jesus came. He plainly says it here. He came to testify to this truth. He came into the world for this purpose, to testify to this truth, that he would be king, that he would be the saviour of the world, that he was the one sent by the Father. But Pilate retorts with something that wouldn't be out of place in our own postmodern context. He says, what is truth? But this is where the irony arises again because Pilate is there to sort out what the truth of the matter is. He is there judging on this matter and here is one who doesn't even know what truth is. We need the truth. This is the only way that we can have a solid foundation. There are many who are offended at the idea of objective truth and they say that you can have your truth and I'll have my truth. But if the word truth is to mean anything, then we understand that that is a nonsensical statement. There is only one truth. And so in many respects, the battle that we face is a battle over what is the truth. 
what is the real way that we should look at the world? What is the, who is the true ruler of this world? Who is the one that we should serve? Should we serve ourselves? Should we serve false gods? Should we serve the state? Or should we serve God? You see, because if there is an objective truth, then it means everybody else has to in some way bend to it, to take it on board. Pilate is, determined, uh, is tasked with determining a truth that he can't know what it is. We need a basis of truth. In the third section, we have the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous. Pilate doesn't really come to a real conclusion. And so he basically comes out to say, look, there's no reason for me to kill him. He doesn't see Jesus as a threat to the Roman Empire. With this, he went out again to the Jews and answered there and said, oh, sorry, Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken a part in the uprising. Barabbas was a murderer. And so here we find our third irony. The fact that the people are standing there calling out for Jesus, for, their, for Pilate to give them a criminal, a murderer, one who takes life. They would rather have the one who takes life than the one who gives life. They would rather have the criminal than the one who had lived in perfect obedience to God's law. They would rather have the one that brings discord and disunity than the one who is reconciling people to God. But we see here this beautiful picture of the gospel because this is what Jesus came to do. He came to become the righteous for the unrighteous. He came... To go in our place. It was in a very literal sense for Barabbas. Barabbas was in prison and he had a very literal swap. He was released and Jesus was suffered the consequences. This is what it is for us. For us who would come to Jesus, for us who would find eternal life, we need to come and recognize ourselves as being like Barabbas. You might say, oh, I've never done anything like Barabbas has done. But if you were to start writing down all of the mistakes that you have made in your life, I'm sure you would start to find that it was a bit of a longer list than you thought. And then let's go to God's law and start comparing our lives against what God says about the way that we should live. And one of the things that God says is even in the way that we think we can sin against God. We are criminals in the sight of God's law. We deserve, like Barabbas, to be locked up. We deserve to be executed for our crimes against the Most High. And yet Jesus comes in and he says, I will take your consequences. It is as though we are standing in the dock before God, charged with a guilty sentence in a courtroom. 
and Jesus comes in and takes our place. He went and suffered and died in our place because the the consequences of sin is death. So Jesus takes that consequence. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. He took our place. But not only did he just let us get off scot-free, so to speak, he actually gives us his righteousness, the righteousness that we don't deserve, an alien righteousness that comes from him to us. Like a bank account with a record of debt against God on one side, Jesus has paid off all that debt. But not only that, he has filled our account to overflowing with his own righteousness. And so we can stand before God, we can come before him, we can come into his presence freely because of Christ. We can come and live with him for eternity. No more do we need to worry about cleanness and uncleanness because we have been cleansed by Jesus and we stand in the presence of God that we have no right to stand were it apart from the righteousness of Christ. Jesus swapped places with Barabbas. And that's where we leave the story for this week. So what have we covered this morning? We've seen, we've seen that irony. Uh, We saw that irony of uh, the guys being scrupulous about the particular uh, finer points of their law while trying to twist the system to, to murder. They were straining out a gnat while eating a camel. It's a reminder to us of our need to be careful about our own hypocrisy. We saw that the one who was in charge of defining truth couldn't even figure out what truth was himself. It's a reminder to us that we need to be founded on the truth, the everlasting truth, the the truth that is immovable in Jesus Christ. And we see in this last section that irony of swapping the life taker for the life giver but it is a beautiful picture of what we have received in Jesus Christ I pray that you might take comfort in this knowing that although we deserve God's wrath although we deserve punishment Jesus Christ has stepped in and taken it away let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you for the mercy that is available to us in Jesus Christ We thank you that he went in our place, that he suffered and died in our place, that he, the life giver, gives us life. We thank you, Lord, for him who is the the author of truth. He is, in some sense, truth incarnate. And we pray, Lord, that we might know that truth in Jesus, our Lord. We pray, Lord, that knowing that truth, you might... um, rid us of all our hypocrisy that we might be seen uh, we might see things for how they really are that we might not be deceiving ourselves like those uh, religious leaders of old please lord um, build us up in faith and newness of life we pray in jesus name amen